choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. In God's speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero J, and I feel fine. Okay, I feel Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 125 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo Astronaut Selection and Training Part 3. Recall from last week's episode, I covered astronaut selection for groups 3 and 4. Today, We will continue the topic with Group 5, and I have a little more on Group 4, the scientist astronauts. From 1964 through 1966, George Miller, chief of manned spaceflight programs, worked hard to sell an ambitious post-Apollo program to his NASA superiors and to Congress. He called it the Apollo Applications Program and it was established in August of 1965. The Apollo Applications Program estimated 29 lunar and Earth orbital missions between the years 1968 and 1971. Nineteen of the missions would be manned flights, launched at the rate of eight per year. A manned program of that magnitude seemed to have little chance of becoming reality. But, until circumstances forced him to back down from it, Miller kept the pressure on the field centers to plan for big things. At Houston, Robert Gilruth and Deke Slayton, no matter whatever their own views about the probability that 19-man missions would actually occur between 68 and 71, they still had to prepare to furnish crews for whatever emerged as the Apollo Applications Program. If the projected Apollo Applications Program missions should actually materialize, many crews would be needed in short order and training had to begin soon. While the recruitment of Group 4, the scientist astronauts, was underway, Gilruth and Deke Slayton urged that additional pilot candidates be sought at the same time, but Miller decided to wait until the scientist astronauts had been chosen. But when only six trainees emerged from that selection process, he agreed to go ahead with Group 5. So, on September 10, 1965, NASA headquarters announced it would accept applications for a new class of pilot astronauts, Qualifications would be the same as they had been for the third group, a bachelor's degree in science or engineering plus 1,000 hours of jet flying time or qualification as a test pilot. The announcement yielded 351 applicants, the largest number of pilots ever to apply, of whom 159 met the basic requirements. 
final screening during the next four months produced the fifth class of astronaut candidates. On April 4, 1966, NASA announced that 19 new flight candidates had been selected. 19 pilots, 4 civilian and 15 military officers. 11 of the 5th group held advanced degrees, 2 of them doctorates. This brought the total roster up to 50. Deke Slayton presided over the Corps, selecting and training the crews that were flying Gemini missions almost bimonthly. The 19 candidates were Vance D. Brand, John S. Bull, Gerald P. Carr, Charles M. Duke, Joe H. Engel, Ronald E. Evans, Edward G. Givens, Fred W. Hayes, James B. Irwin, Don L. Lynn, John R. Lusma, Thomas K. Mattingly, Bruce McCandles, Edgar Mitchell, William Pogue, Stuart Rosa, John L. Swigert, Paul J. Weitz, and Alfred M. Warden. Actually, this fifth set brought the total selected to 55, but the number on active status had been reduced for a variety of reasons. John Glenn had resigned to pursue a political and business career, Scott Carpenter had returned to duty in the Navy, and Charles Bassett, Theodore Freeman, and Elliot C. had been killed in aircraft accidents. In mid-1966, when the fourth group of scientist astronauts had completed their flight training and the third group of pilots had reported aboard, the astronaut corps numbered 44 pilots and 5 scientists, or 41 pilots and 8 scientists depending on how Cunningham, Swikert, and Lind were classified. This ratio of 44 to 5 hardly supported the contention that NASA was interested in sending scientists into space. At the Manned Spacecraft Center, Deke Slayton and Robert Gilruth considered that they had quite enough pilots to carry out the programs that they could realistically envision and that pilots could be trained to conduct the scientific work that was planned for the lunar landing missions. At headquarters, however, both Homer Newell in the Office of Space Science and Applications and George Miller in the Office of Manned Spaceflight thought otherwise. Homer Newell, representing the science community, wanted more spaceflight to give more attention to science and less to the engineering and piloting aspects of spaceflight. Newell believed that in order for George Miller to sell an ambitious program of post-Apollo manned missions based largely on scientific research in space, could use more scientists in the astronaut corps to give credibility to his appeals to Congress and to gain political support from scientists outside NASA. In spite of Houston's reluctance to take on astronaut trainees who would have little expectation of flying in space, headquarters and the National Academy of Science announced on September 26, 1966, that applications would be accepted for a second group of scientists to be trained as astronauts. 
selection would be made in about six months. But by the time they came aboard, post-Apollo manned spaceflight programs were in a precarious position, and the future looked much less bright. The chances seemed good that any scientist who went to the moon would be one of the first five already in the program. No member of Group 6 flew in Apollo. During 1965 and 66, the Manned Spacecraft Center was busier than ever. Gemini flights were being launched from Cape Canaveral every other month on average, the Apollo Command and Service Module was progressing, of course not without difficulty, toward its first Earth orbital flight test. Mission planners were hard at work on lunar mission trajectories and contingency planning. Others were studying the photographs of the lunar surface from Ranger and Surveyor, looking for suitable landing sites and scrutinizing the barren surface for possible unwelcome surprises. Still to come were the extensive and detailed photographs from Lunar Orbiter. The astronaut office was as busy as the rest of the center. All of the remaining Group 1, Mercury 7, plus the Group 2, also known as the Next 9, and 10 of Group 3, called the 14, were training for and flying the Gemini missions. By the end of 1966, crews for the first four Apollo Earth orbital missions had been assigned and were spending much of their time in design reviews and flight simulations. Russell Swikert, one of the two scientists picked as a pilot, was serving as a kind of peacekeeper, mediating between the astronaut office and the experimenters who had projects on Gemini. His compatriot, Walter Cunningham was sent to the Falmouth Conference in mid-1965 to explain to scientists some of the operational factors that so strongly constrained a lunar landing mission. Two of the first five scientist astronauts, Joe Kerwin and Kurt Michel, did not start basic astronaut training during their first year, and so were assigned to represent the astronaut office in matters concerning spacesuits and Apollo applications experiments, respectively. The other three, Owen Garrett, Ed Gibson, and Jack Smith, drew assignments to the Apollo in-flight experiments when they returned from flight training in mid-year, as did Don Lind. Before long, however... Smith was working with academic and geological survey scientists to improve MSC's training course in field geology. Smith was fortunate in having a scientific specialty that was widely accepted as being important to Apollo. The other scientist astronauts, except for Kerwin, whose medical training could be applied to a number of space-related questions, found themselves in an environment oriented almost exclusively to operational and engineering concerns. Independent research was all but impossible. Only Kurt Mitchell, whose academic home base was Rice University 
less than an hour's drive from MSC, made an attempt to sustain his previous research program. Owen Garrett and Ed Gibson had to redirect their scientific interest into fields more closely related to NASA's needs and plans. Apart from the time they had to devote to mastering astronautic skills, the scientists had to spend long hours on chores that sometimes seemed distinctly subsidiary to the main objectives. Among the duties of the astronaut office were making public relations appearances, participating in design reviews, and contributing the astronaut viewpoint to engineering decisions. The scientist astronauts were expected to shoulder their share of these burdens just as the test pilots did. Precious little time was left for keeping abreast of scientific developments. But, in Deke Slayton's view, this was a problem each astronaut had to solve for himself. Nobody was told what he could not do, but it was understood that the astronaut's primary role was to become competent spacecraft operators, and whatever else they wanted to do had to be compatible with that. As long as it was, the astronaut office raised no objection to anyone's supplemental activities. Those who made the adjustment gained the respect of their pilot colleagues. Those who expressed annoyance at these ancillary duties and felt cheated out of scientific opportunities provoked some resentment. After all, the door was always open to leave. When the first scientist astronauts joined the program in 1965, it was not to be expected that science could simply force its way into Apollo, which had yet to fly its first test mission. Nonetheless, the scientific community wanted to make it clear that scientist astronauts were entitled to consideration of their professional scientific requirements. In the fall of 1965, Headquarters Manned Space Science Division commissioned a study group to look into the matter of astronaut training. After some weeks of discussion with MSC officials, the group concluded that the astronaut training program was much too short on science. Further, more scientific astronauts should be brought in as early as possible to provide more scientific resources for the manned spaceflight program. The scientist astronauts should be used as in-house tutors for other astronauts who wanted to improve their scientific background. The astronaut office should actively encourage the astronauts to develop their scientific skills by issuing a policy statement that after engineering evaluation flights are completed and a spacecraft is considered operational, scientific proficiency shall be a prime requisite for at least one member of each flight crew. Remember, anything that seemed to increase their chances of flight assignment was of vital interest to every person in the astronaut corps. The group had learned if Slayton wanted someone on a crew who could speak Mandarin Chinese all the astronauts would study Mandarin Chinese. 
Therefore, if MSC made it clear that scientific proficiency was desirable for crew selection, even the pilot astronauts could develop a passion for science. Perhaps the most difficult recommendation from the study group to implement was that the scientist astronauts be encouraged to keep up their research activity by affiliating with an established research group. The minimum amount of time required to maintain scientific proficiency, the group concluded, is believed to be one day per week for discussions, seminars, etc., plus one full week each month in which the scientist astronaut can become completely immersed in his research. The group could not suggest how this could be squeezed into an already tight training schedule, but they noted that astronauts spent considerable time at seemingly trivial tasks in engineering design that might be relegated to others. Paradoxically, however, these time-consuming chores seemed an indispensable part of the program, since the astronauts were the only competent group having an overview of the whole operation and were the only single group that another astronaut would trust. Stressing, as it did, the importance of research to a scientist, the study group's report could have been read as calling for a division of the Corps into a test pilot group and a scientist group. The need for the scientist astronauts to spend more than one-third of their time in research was received with some skepticism by the pilots, whose reaction was later summarized by one of them. Quote, Some of those guys came in figuring, I'll write my textbook and my thesis and teach university courses, and I'll come by twice a week, and be an astronaut. Well, that didn't work. We were devoting our lives to this whole thing, and you couldn't devote anything less. I don't care what your discipline was. End quote. The issue did not become divisive because the scientist astronauts themselves accurately perceived the situation that they were in, and most of them did not try to make the system fit their unique needs. They saw the utility of maxim. If you want to get along, go along. The study group's report was received politely but coolly at MSC. If Mercury and Gemini had shown anything, it was that the unexpected may turn out to be the norm, and no one knew how well a scientist however skilled and intelligent, would react to these sudden operational emergencies. On the other hand, appropriate reaction to such situations was believed to be almost instinctive to a good test pilot. Slayton and Gilruth, pondering the problem of landing an exotic spacecraft on a strange and possibly dangerous surface, naturally adopted the view that piloting skills were essential to mission success. Slayton repeatedly expressed this view in plain language, quote, Nobody would benefit from a mission that left a dead geologist, 
and his colleague in the lunar module on the moon. End quote. Implying that just such a thing might happen if the pilot of the lunar landing module could not cope quickly enough with a sudden emergency. So, it was up to the scientists to prove that they could become competent astronauts, which most of them did. None would ever command an Apollo mission. None would ever pilot a lunar module to a moon landing or a command module through re-entry. But they showed themselves able to tackle the training program and willing to share the less pleasant but essential duties of an astronaut. Of the first six scientists picked as astronauts, four eventually flew in space. Many of the others filled essential roles in science planning and mission operation during the later Apollo missions. Okay, how did Group 5 fare with the Apollo Lunar Program? I'm going to answer that question, but I'm only including their role in the Apollo Lunar Program. Nothing before or after. No spoilers for any flights after the Apollo Lunar Program. Charles M. Duke, Apollo 16 Lunar Module Pilot, the fifth manned lunar landing and the tenth person to walk on the moon. Ronald E. Evans, Apollo 17, Command Module Pilot on the last manned lunar landing. Fred W. Hayes, Apollo 13, Lunar Module Pilot, aborted lunar landing, would have been the sixth person to walk on the moon. James B. Irwin, Apollo 15, Lunar Module Pilot, fourth manned lunar landing, eighth person to walk on the moon. Kenneth Mattingly, Apollo 16, Command Module Pilot, the fifth manned lunar landing. Edgar D. Mitchell, Apollo 14, Lunar Module Pilot, third manned lunar landing, sixth person to walk on the moon. Stuart A. Rusa, Apollo 14, Command Module Pilot, third manned lunar landing. John L. Swigert, Apollo 13, Command Module Pilot, aborted lunar landing. Alfred M. Wordson, Apollo 15, Command Module Pilot, the fourth manned lunar landing. The rest of Group 5 did not fly on an Apollo lunar mission. Now for a change of topic. I'm going to devote the remainder of this episode to a personal account of astronaut training. I want to read some excerpts from Apollo 11 astronaut Michael Collins' book called Carrying the Fire, An Astronaut's Journey. In the excerpts, Mike Collins describes his experience with survival training in the jungles of Panama. We were divided into teams of two for this three-day outing, and my partner was Bill Anders, who turned out to be a jewel in two very important ways. First, he was an outdoorsman, an avid fisherman who liked nothing better than to keep walking until he found a stream no one else had fished. And he was an experienced camper, wise in the ways of providing substitutes for the creature comforts that we city dwellers had come to expect. Second, and no less important, he was a finicky eater, but more about that later. 
Our first task was to hike a couple of miles through the jungle to our assigned camping area. I got my first surprise of the day when looking on the ground as instructed by Air Force Manual 64-5. I not only did not spy any hedgehogs, porcupines, pangolins, mice, wild pigs, etc. I didn't see anything moving at all. Furthermore, the trees were devoid of the promised bats, squirrels, rats, and monkeys. I suppose we were making such a din and clatter as we proceeded that any but the most aged and feeble creatures were staying miles ahead of us. Or maybe it was that this particular part of the jungle was simply empty. Was that possible? I don't know, but it was certainly quiet, and as my stomach got emptier and emptier, my visions of plump little creatures roasting merrily on a split became not only much more attractive, but obviously much less realistic. Anders, what the heck are we going to eat? Collins, you couldn't be hungry already, we just got here. By the time we got to our camp and got our meager possessions organized, night was falling, and we became trapped, helpless victims of the jungle until dawn. I settled down in my makeshift hammock, stomach gurgling its disappointment. To add insult to injury, Anders had somehow managed to attract a huge swarm of mosquitoes, which he generously shared with me. Squatting and scratching, nursing a terrible headache, I finally drifted off into fitful sleep. A hungry, disillusioned, mosquito-bitten, would-be philosopher with a very bleak future. The next day dawned, bright and dry, at least. We busied, busily set about looking for food. We spent the morning trying unsuccessfully to catch minnows in a small stream and foraging futilely for some edible plants. Finally, we were visited by the school director and his staff, who cheerfully informed us that really the only things worth eating in these here parts were the palm trees, that is, certain palm trees. It turns out that those little whitish discs you find in your heart of palm salad are part of a largest cylinder of edible stalk buried inside the trunk of certain varieties of palm tree. The trick is to be an expert palm tree identifier because it takes a couple of hours to chop down a palm tree with just a small machete and to whack through the tough fibrous exterior of the upper trunk to expose what could be either a delicious tender heart or more of the same in edible woody pulp, depending on the palm tree. To me, if you've seen one palm tree, you've seen them all. With great hopes, but little science, Bill and I finally selected a likely candidate and amateurishly went into our act, whacking away like mad until it finally toppled over. Out of the severed trunk boiled thousands of ants, but before they drove us away, we could clearly make out the fact that the area of the heart was discolored and decayed. With great trepidation, we picked a second victim. This time, we hit the jackpot. 
and a couple of hours later we were able to make off with our prize, a heart perhaps two feet long and five inches in diameter, more than enough to keep the two of us in salad for a day or so. We were still having no luck in the protein department, so again our soft-hearted instructors came to the rescue. They had found iguanas. All of the astronauts, twosomes, were called together to share this good news, and we buzzed excitedly about a couple of unfortunate victims who regarded us unblinkingly from the spot they were unceremoniously dumped. They could not run away because their front legs and rear legs had been tied behind them. Slowly, the shocking nature of these gruesome bonds became evident. The big lizards were tied with their own tendons, which were being stretched by jerking them loose from the extremities they were still connected to. The exposed tendons were then used as cords and were neatly knotted. Although cruel beyond belief according to our SPCA standards, this method of restraint is apparently the accepted one in many tropical countries, and the mute and passive creatures may spend several days in what must be agony between the time of their capture in the jungle and their eventual sale and slaughter in the city markets, which their chicken-like flesh is considered a delicacy. Although threatening in appearance, prehistoric and dragon-like iguanas are actually sluggish, harmless fellows and deserve better treatment. Therefore, it seemed an act of charity to slaughter them quickly, which we did, dividing up the pieces evenly between teams. Bill and I returned to camp with ours, and within minutes had a cheery fire going with water boiling in a tin can into which we plunked savory chunks of iguana. I remember that the last piece in, a front leg, kept floating to the surface with small, supplicating hand extended. Despite my best efforts to poke it back down, Bill watched all this in uncomfortable silence, and finally muttered something about his share of iguana being available if I wanted it, as he really wasn't hungry. What a partner, what a buddy, not ever hungry. I thanked him profusely and sat cross-legged by the fire, which kept the mosquitoes away, munching on crunchy heart of palm, happily gulping great chunks of iguana, burping contently and thinking that the jungle seemed not such a bad place after all. to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.